Right, Grace Community Church, we've been coming through Genesis together, and we're at Genesis 48 this morning. Before we get there, let me say just a few things. Um, what does it look like to be a man or woman of faith? Where do we go? <clears throat> Where do we go in God's Word to find examples of men and women of faith? What does it look like? This is massively important. The same way you think about love as being a foundation, that when you truly love God, you truly love people, it changes everything. It affects all kinds of things. It's like a foundation. Faith is very similar to that. And all throughout God's Word, you see love and faith being put together. So this is a big deal when it comes to anything in life, your anxieties, fears, passions, whatever it might be. What does it look like to be a man or woman of faith in God? In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, it gives these examples of by faith, Abraham, by faith, Isaac, by faith, Jacob. And you have these examples of what it is to live by faith. And in chapter 11, verse 13, it says these all speaking about these Old Testament examples, excuse me. It says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, greeted them or or embraced them from afar. What does it look like to be a man or woman of faith? It has something to do with having eyes on promises from God. And even though they may not be fulfilled now, embracing them, laying hold of those promises. It's an example given to us in Hebrews eleven thirteen. Now, if you took if you took Jacob's life in Genesis and you said, what's the best example in Jacob's life of him being a man of faith? If you just had one place to go, if you, you could only choose one part of his life in Genesis, where would you go to? And the writer to Hebrews picks Genesis 48 where we're at this morning. The writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11, verse 21, it's mentioned in by faith Abraham, by faith Isaac, and then it comes to by faith Jacob. And he gets his one shot to say, this is the example of Jacob being a man of faith. And listen to what he says in Hebrews eleven twenty-one: By faith Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship, over the head of his staff. And then it goes on to by faith Joseph. So, so the place in Jacob's life that the writer of Hebrews picks to say, that's the example of a man of faith is the passage that we're in this morning in Genesis chapter 48. I want you to hear from Kenneth Matthews. He wrote a commentary on Genesis 48. And he says this, the last days of Jacob also display His enduring faith. Jacob exhibited a strong finish in his race of faith. Placing his confidence in God's promises despite appearances. And brothers and sisters, I long for that for us. That we would be men and women of faith that would place deep confidence in the promises of God despite what you see around you. Deep confidence in the Word of God, 
regardless of circumstance. And so we have this example in Genesis 48. So our biblical commentary on Genesis 48, which is Hebrews eleven twenty one, 21, and extra biblical commentary from Kenneth Matthews and others tell us that we need to have a keen eye out for an example, faith being exemplified for us in Genesis 48. So keep your eyes out for faith being exemplified in Genesis 48. So let's, if you're not already there, go to Genesis 48. We're going to read all of it together. So how about we stand for the reading of God's Word. Genesis 48. Lean in and hear the words of God. After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And it was told to Jacob, Your son Joseph has come to you. Then Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I will make you a company of peoples. And will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. And now, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. And the children that you fathered after them shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. As for me, when I came from Padan, to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way. when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. When Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face and behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Then Joseph removed them from his knees and he bowed himself with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. And he took his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's 
head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn, put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know my son, I know he also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day saying, by you Israel will pronounce blessings saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. You can be seated. Let's, let's pray that God would give us eyes to see as we consider God's Word. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for these words. Beautiful words from You. Lord, You said in what we read just a moment ago that this man in this chapter was an example for us of faith. God, help us to see that. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see your word in such a way that we see Christ and that we worship you, God, for who you are, that we worship Christ. Open our eyes to see your word in such a way that it changes us. That we would be sanctified by your word. Fill our hearts with faith and confidence in the truth. As we consider your word right now, please, God, give us help. Thank you, Lord, for hearing us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want us to consider this chapter in really five different sections. First section will be the character and the promises of God. You see that in verses 1 through 4. So verses 1 through 4, the character and the promises of God. So just thinking about verses 1 through 4, try to imagine the scene for just a moment. Jacob is old. He's sick. He's nearly blind. Jacob's on his deathbed. And Joseph hears about it and he brings his boys to see Jacob, their grandfather. He brings his boys to see him. He says at one point that Jacob has to summon his strength in order just to sit up in bed. The picture that, that Hebrews eleven twenty one gave us is that he's leaning on his staff. This is a man at the end of his life. And here he is on his deathbed. And what comes out of his mouth? What, what's coming out of Jacob's mouth when he's on his deathbed? And we see the character of God. Verse 3 calls him God Almighty. And we see the promises of God as he reminds Joseph of the promise in verse four. So what's on his mouth on his on his deathbed, the character of God and the promises of God. And I want to encourage you to remember that these are foundations for the faith that 
At the bottom of faith is you seeing the character of God, God for who He is, and the promises of God, what God has said. These are the foundations of faith. The basis of faith, the, the ground of faith. Real faith flows out of you seeing the character of God and the promises of God in the Word of God. And that's what we see is on Jacob's mind in his last days. So I want you to think about that for a minute. Faith is not just a, a good feeling that everything's going to be all right. We're not talking about Disney World or uh, Disney faith. We're talking about faith. Faith is not just a hunch that everything's going to be okay, but it's faith rooted in, I see what God has said about His character, what He said about His promises, and I trust Him. I trust Him based off His Word. And so to have eyes of faith, what must you see? You must see the character of God and the promises of God and the Word of God. To have ears of faith, what must you hear? You must hear the character of God and the promises of God in the Word of God. To stand in faith, where must you place your feet? On the bedrock of God's Word where we see His character and His promises and we trust Him. So the foundation of faith is what's on Jacob's mind in his heart and on his lips in his final days. And so that's what we see here. Jacob's on his deathbed and he remembers the character of God. You see it in verse 3? He calls him God Almighty. God Almighty. It's a beautiful name of God. This is El Shaddai. God Almighty. The one who has all might. The one who has all power. The one who is, he, he's the omnipotent one. The one that cannot be stopped. The one that does whatever He pleases. This is God Almighty and He knows this. And so if he, can just, if he can just grab a glimpse of the will of God and the promises of God, He can bank on it because God is powerful to do all His will. The character of God. God Almighty. And then also His deathbed remembrance the promises of God. We see it right here. Not just who God is, but what God has said. Let's read it again in verse 4. And said to me, so here's the promise that he's remembering and telling to Joseph. Behold, I will make you a fruitful, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And I'll make of you a company of peoples and will give this land to your offspring after you for an everlasting possession. So what we see there is what we've seen throughout Genesis. The seed promise. It's about Jacob's offspring multiplying in the nations. And we see the land promise about this land that has been promised to them. So we see the seed promise and the land promise is on his mind while he's in his deathbed. Now this is the promise of Genesis. Meaning if you don't understand this promise, you don't understand Genesis. You may not understand the whole Bible. Think about it for a minute that Abraham in Genesis 12 was given that promise. Abraham, in your seed, in your lineage is going to come about a nation of people. And through that lineage and through that seed is going to come a Christ, a Messiah, a Savior. That's the promise. And then there's a land promise. Abraham, I'm going to give you this land as your inheritance. We see that in Genesis 12. It's repeated to him in Genesis 15 and 17 and, and Genesis 22 verse 18. It's repeated to Isaac in Genesis 26 verse 4. 28, 14, it's repeated to Jacob. This is the promise that's being traced out. The seed promise and the land promise. 
And now we come here to chapter 48, verse 4, and he's still on his deathbed remembering the seed promise and the land promise. And listen, you've got to see this, that these promises are messianic promises. These are promises about the Messiah. We see that even back in, if we read forward into Galatians 3, verse 16, remember that? He's quoting what was said to Abraham. And he says in Galatians 3, 16, that it, that it was said that to Abraham and to his seed. And then it says, it does not say unto seeds as of many, but into your seed who is Christ. This promise that he's remembered on his deathbed is a messianic promise. It's a, it's a promise that reminds him that through his lineage is coming a Messiah, a Christ that will be king of the world and that will save sinners. The one that's going to crush Satan's head. The one that's going to bless all nations. He's remembering this promise on his deathbed. And I want you to think for a minute about the difficulty of faith. Think about the difficulty of believing this promise. His grandfather Abraham had received this promise. And he believed it. And he died and it was unfulfilled. His dad Isaac had received this promise and he believed it and he died, but he didn't see the promise fulfilled. And now you've got Jacob. He's received the promise and he believes it. He trusts in the promise and yet here he is on his deathbed and it's unfulfilled. Do you see the difficulty in faith, the difficulty in trusting the promise? And yet what do we see him doing till his final breath? We see him clinging to the promise. A man walking by faith, clinging to the promise that God has given him in His Word to the very end. And that's my prayer for us. Grace Community Church, that on our deathbeds, we would cling to the promises of God to the very end. That regardless of the circumstance around us, we would be a people that are men and women of faith that cling, absolutely cling to the promises of God. Be encouraged from 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. It says that God's divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You've got everything you need for life and for a godly life through what? Through the knowledge of Him. Who's called us in glory and virtue. That's his character. You've got everything you need for life and God is through the knowledge of him, through his character, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You got everything you need for life and God is through what? Through the character of God and through these exceedingly great and precious promises of God through which you see in his word, you believe and you're men and women of faith. It goes on to say, by which you become partakers of divine nature. Partakers of the divine. I want us to be men and women that cling to the knowledge of God and to His promises. Now, second section here is the adoption. We see that in verse 5 through 7. We see the adoption. We see Jacob is adopting, in a sense, Joseph's oldest boys. In other words, what we see in verse 5 through 7 is Jacob is moving these boys from the status of grandsons to the status of sons. Even, even the firstborn. Look at it in verse 5. And now, Jacob says, your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, 
are mine. Jacob says they're mine. Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine as Reuben and Simeon are. Reuben and Simeon, that's his first and second born. They're not going to be shorted at all in the inheritance. This is about an inheritance. Like it says, inheritance of verse 6 and 7. This is about the inheritance. They will not be shorted. They don't have grandson status. They have son status, even firstborn status. So Jacob is adopting these boys. Now, something that helps you understand that a little more. I'm going to read to you from 1 Chronicles chapter 5. Because what we see is instead of Reuben, Joseph was given the status of the firstborn. And then we've got his two sons are being adopted in to take his place. You've heard it said the half tribe of Manasseh and the half tribe of Ephraim. That's not because they got half of inheritance. That's because Joseph is the firstborn. He's got firstborn status. And these two boys are being adopted in to take his place. Now listen to that from 1 Chronicles 5.1. The sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, so that's the firstborn of Jacob, For he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel. So you catch that? His birthright given to the sons of Joseph. So that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So what do we see In Genesis 48, verse 5 through 7, we see these boys being adopted in by their own grandfather. Those boys are mine. The boys, the the children you have after you shall be yours, Joseph. But, But Jacob says, but these boys are mine. They're being brought in and given this status of the firstborn. Now, this adoption that's happened here, it's happening here. It's an action that's rooted in faith. This action that Jacob and Joseph are taking, their actions rooted in faith. This is a reminder to us that faith works. Faith, I don't mean faith is effective. I mean it works as in it always leads to action. Real faith always leads to work. Uh, James chapter 2 says faith without works is dead. Faith that doesn't lead to action is really no faith at all is the idea in James chapter 2. And so, and so what we're seeing here is Joseph and Jacob have an action that's rooted in their faith in God. And that action is adoption. Now, sometimes, sometimes your actions that you walk in that are rooted in faith will seem crazy to the world. An example, this adoption. This, this adoption is an example of that. I want you to think for just a moment. Jacob is adopting a couple of boys right before he dies. That seems crazy. Think about it from from Joseph. Joseph is allowing these two boys, his two oldest boys, he's allowing them to be adopted in to the shepherd clan. This clan of shepherds. Remember, shepherds are an abomination to the Egyptians. So essentially, Joseph is allowing his boys to be adopted in to the shepherd clan, making his boys uh, an abomination to Egyptians. He's ruining their Egyptian inheritance that they had from being under Joseph as prince of Egypt so that they can have this Hebrew inheritance under Jacob and under the people of God. Seems crazy, right? Don't you think about that for just a moment. Think about the sons of the richest, most powerful, most authoritative man on planet Earth 
Those sons are being removed from that inheritance and given to Jacob. Give it to Jacob under his inheritance, uh, an old blind man who owns nothing. And he's about to die. Doesn't this seem crazy? Try to see it from, from Ephraim and Manasseh's perspective. That they see that they had this inheritance, this Egyptian inheritance from Joseph, full of riches and power, and maybe they take his place in the kingdom. They had that from Joseph. Now they're being moved from that underneath Jacob's inheritance. An old blind man who owns nothing is about to die. Seems crazy, right? What makes sense out of this? Faith. Faith in the promise is the only thing that can make sense out of this. Think about it like this. The eyes of faith can see that the inheritance, the Egyptian inheritance, is not as glorious as Jacob's inheritance. The eyes of faith can see that. The world would say, no, no, no. Take the riches, take the worldly success, take the power. That's what the world would say. But the eyes of faith see something more beautiful than riches, more beautiful than power, more beautiful than worldly success. They see being a part of the people of God, being in covenant with God. They see messianic promises of future glory. And they would rather be under that than to be under all the riches and power of Egypt. So the only thing that makes sense out of this adoption is faith and a promise that is not yet fulfilled. Now, this leads us to a huge question, a huge question for every one of us. Are you willing to forsake all the so-called glories of this life in order to lay hold of the invisible promises of God? Are you willing to forsake all the glories of this life to lay hold of the invisible promises of God? Listen to this in Luke chapter 9. This is the call in verse 24. Whoever, this is from Jesus, Jesus says, whoever would save his life will lose it. You want to keep this life? You want to keep Egypt? You'll lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Whoever loses his life for my sake, loses Egypt, loses this world for my sake, will actually find it. And listen to this exhortation. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? What's it profit him if he gains all of Egypt and all the world and yet he loses or forfeits his own soul? What gain is that? And so Jacob and Joseph have a faith and a promise that has led, to, led them to this place of adoption, which might seem crazy to the world, but it's an action that's it's a work, it's an action that's rooted in faith, this adoption. Let's go to the third section. This is the blessing from verse 8 through 16. So in verses 8 through 16, we see Jacob given the blessing to these two boys. Now try to imagine the scene for just a minute. Just see if you can wrap your mind around this scene. Blind Jacob realizes that the boys he just adopted are in the room. Who are these with you? Says the man that can't see. These are 
my two sons, which God has given me. Joseph said, he realizes they're in the room. He says, bring them to me so that I can bless them. And, and you see him bring them, brings the sons to Jacob. Just imagine that scene. He begins to kiss them and embrace them and hug them and hold them. That's the scene that we have here in verse 8 through 16. Then Joseph takes his sons and he pulls them in close. Joseph bows down and he prepares to bring his sons to Jacob for that blessing. And it says he's got Ephraim on his right hand, the youngest son, so that as he faces Jacob, that youngest son will go to his left hand. And he's got Manasseh, the firstborn, on his left hand so that when he goes to Jacob for that blessing, he'll be on his right hand as it, as it ought to be. And then as those boys come in and, he, and Jacob's getting ready to bless those boys, Jacob does something really strange. It says, he, it says here he purposely crosses his arms. Can you see that picture of him crossing his arms and, and all of a sudden he's got his right hand on the youngest son Ephraim. He's got his left hand on the oldest son, Manasseh. And we'll come back to what that's all about in just a minute. And with his hands crossed and on those boys' heads, he begins to give a blessing. In verse 15 and 16, we see him bless Joseph and thus bless the boys. Now, a few things that we see, a few things that we see and need to take away from this blessing. One is that faith worships. And two is that faith knows the future. We need to see both of those things in this blessing. That faith worships and faith knows the future. Let's start with faith worships. Jacob, with his eyes of faith, he knows who God is. And since he knows with faith who God is, it spills out of his heart in worship to the living God. Now, I'm not making that up. That's the way that it's being described in Hebrews 11, 21. It says he's leaning over his staff, worshiping. So the summary statement of Genesis 48 that's found in Hebrews 11, 21, the summary statement is that Jacob is worshiping there. Because faith, when you really see God for who He is, it causes you to worship and praise the living God. Now we see some examples of this. For example, verse 11. And Israel said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. Do you hear the gratefulness in his heart there? This thanksgiving to God. I didn't even expect to see your face, but I get to see you and your offspring. And it says, behold, God has allowed this. Thanksgiving to God that's felt and thanksgiving to God that is expressed. This is worship to God. And that's what we see him doing here. We see him worshiping God. Him seeing Joseph and seeing his grandsons is not a mere coincidence, but, but this, is, this is the good hand of God upon me. And he worships in gratefulness. You see it down in verse 15 and 16 as you look at the actual blessing. So as he gets ready to bless them, he mentions, he describes God three times. Look at it. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Bless the boys. He's worshiping God in this blessing. He's the God that loved and cared for Abraham, my, my grandfather. He's the God that loved and cared for Isaac, my father. He's, he's the God who has shepherded me, shepherded me all the days of my life. I love that phrase. 
You see that about God? That every step you've taken, God has been the shepherd of your soul. He's been shepherding you every step of the way. Redeem me from all evil, it says here. So he's, he's worshiping God. Faith worships God because it sees God for who He truly is. And it spills out in worship. Now also faith knows the future. And you see that just as you keep reading the blessing. It's not just a blessing. This is a prophetic blessing. Meaning everything that He says to them comes to pass. Look at it. And in them, let my name be carried on in the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. Now as you get into the next section, you see even more details that that, uh, Manasseh will will grow into a people, but Ephraim will grow into a, a, a a, a multitude of nations. So you see this prophetic, he knows the future because God has revealed it to him. So faith worships and faith knows the future. So brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to call you in to a life of faith. Okay? Through this, I want to call you into a life of faith. I want to call you in to seeing who God is in His Word. Do you really know who God is in His Word? And when you believe it, your heart will give Him praise. Your heart will worship. I want to call you into that kind of faith. But not only that, the kind of faith that knows the future. Now here's what I don't mean. I don't mean that I want you walking around just divvying out prophetic blessings. Okay? Don't do that. These patriarchs and these prophets and these apostles have a very unique place in history and those titles apply to none of us here. Okay? That's not what I mean. But what you can do is you can read the words of the prophets and the apostles. You can read their words about the future and you can believe those things and you can bank your life on them. You can trust Him. You can align your life according to what you know about the future. Think about so many things like that. Think about the second coming of Christ. What you know about that. You know the future. You know 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-16 about the coming of Christ. Think about that judgment that's coming. You know the future. Line up your life in light of that. If you believe it, you will. Think about Revelation 21 and 22 about how Christ is going to wipe away every tear from their eyes and those five beautiful words, we will see His face. Believe it. And line up your life with it. Faith worships and faith knows the future. Please don't let this be said of you. This is a word from Jesus to his disciples after his resurrection. Do not let this be said of you. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And number four. We're going to come to the reversal. And this is verses 17 through 20. Again, try to imagine the scene. There's Jacob. The boys are coming in. The firstborn is coming in on his right hand. And he does this strange thing. and crosses his hands. He reverses it. He crosses his hands and puts that right hand blessing. The son of my right hand. He puts it on the younger and not on the firstborn. And as we read through verse 17 through 20, we see that Joseph is distraught. 
It says, when Joseph saw, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father had laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. He's distraught that he's doing this. He's distraught that, that he's reversing this thing. You're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to put the right hand on the firstborn. And Joseph literally, he, he grabs his father's hand and tries to correct him. To which his father responds in verse 19 and says, but his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his offspring shall become a multitude of nations. At the end of verse 20, it says, thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. He put Ephraim before Manasseh. I want you to think about this reversal for just a minute. What's the conventional way of doing things? What's the, what's the uh, normative way of doing things? The firstborn gets the double portion. The, the firstborn gets the, the right hand blessing. The, the firstborn is put before his brothers. That's the conventional way of doing things. Well, guess what? God's unconventional. He, God is not bound to the normative ways of man. God's not bound in that way. He can't put him in this box of men's conventions. You just can't do that. He does things as he pleases. He's sovereign God that does whatever he wants. This is not the conventional way because our God is not conventional. And therefore, faith in this God will oftentimes look unconventional, like crossed arms, like adopting these sons right before you die. Faith in this God will often look unconventional. You know, God tells us, do not be conformed to the world. Don't be normal in the eyes of the world. Don't be conformed to the world. Why? Because God's not conformed to the world. He's not bound by the conventions of men. He's not bound by what's normally done, by what's generally acceptable. God's not bound by any of that. And so I want you to think about this reversal. This reversal is a pattern throughout Genesis. Okay? In other words, we read this in Genesis 48 and we think, man, this just keeps happening. Why, why do we see this pattern of reversal? Remember that back with Cain and Abel, right? Not Cain, the firstborn, he wouldn't accept it, Abel was. Remember it with, with, uh, Ish, uh, excuse me, with Ishmael and Isaac? Not Ishmael, the firstborn. Isaac. Isaac is the one. The next row of sons. You see it with Jacob and Esau. Not Esau, the firstborn, but Jacob. Even while they were in the womb, God said, the older shall serve the younger. Esau shall serve Jacob. That's quoted for us in Romans 9. It's a pattern throughout Scripture. We, we see the same thing with uh, uh, Jacob's sons. Not Reuben, the firstborn, but Joseph. And now we see it here in Genesis 48. Not Manasseh, but Ephraim. Why do we have this pattern of reversal? And I want to answer that. Everybody flip with me to Romans chapter 9, where this reversal is... It's mentioned, and we're given the reason why. Romans chapter 9, verse 11. We're going to read 11 and 12. Though they were not yet born, speaking about Jacob and Esau, though they were not yet born, 
and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older shall serve the younger. Think about that for a minute. The older shall serve the younger. Why? This reversal that we see is a pattern in Genesis. Why? What's the reason? Well, he says here, in order that God's purpose of election might stand. Why? Why, why the older shall serve the younger? Why the reversal? To make it plain that God is not bound by men's conventions. He chooses whom He pleases. This is about God's choice. It's about God's election. That the purpose of election might stand. It goes on to say, not by works. Not the way men think, think, think that it works. It doesn't work that way. Not by works, but by Him who calls. Why this reversal? Why should the older serve the younger? Because this is about God who calls. He's not bound by men's normalities. And so what do we take from Genesis 48? What do we take away then from Genesis 48? Oftentimes our faith, brothers and sisters, is going to look unconventional. In fact, it might even look crazy to the world. Because we believe in a God and in a God's words who is not conformed to the patterns of this world. We believe in a God that does whatever he pleases and he will flex his election. He'll flex his calling and choosing and doing as he pleases. So oftentimes, like Joseph and Jacob and this adoption and this crossing of the hands, our faith and our actions coming out of our faith may not look Normative to the world, at least. Now, this keeps going in Scripture. You see the same thing with the first kings of Israel, right? Not Saul. That's who men thought should be king. Look at that tall, beautiful man. That's who should be king right there. Saul. God says, not Saul, but David. The one not even his own daddy expected. Even Christ, listen to me, Christ Jesus the King comes into the world and guess what? He's not who everybody expected. He did not fit the conventions of men. They were not expecting a baby born in a horse trough. They weren't expecting a man from Nazareth. They weren't expecting a friend of sinners who rebuked the religious elites. They weren't expecting one who entered into deep humiliation. Can you see him there on the cross? Stripped of his clothing, beaten and bruised and bloody, hanging defeated upon a cross. That's the Savior? Nobody expected that. And yet God takes that dying, bleeding Savior and through those wounds, the world can be healed. Through those wounds, saviors can be, uh, excuse me, sinners can be saved. Through Him dying on the cross, He takes our sin onto Himself so that we can be set free. We don't have to come under the wrath of God because He took it for us. Only God can come up with that. Jesus didn't fit men's conventions. And we see the same thing as it comes to us. Think about who, think about us, or think about more generally speaking, God's people. Think about God's people for a minute. You know, we say really foolish things like this. We say foolish things like this. We say, you know, if that guy got saved, man, he'd be a real good Christian. You know, if that, that woman over there got saved, man, she'd win so many souls to Christ. 
Man, look how wise he is. Look how outgoing she is. Man, if they got saved, if they became Christians, that's the way we think and it's foolish. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. In other words, everybody, look around for a minute. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But listen, God flexes His choosing. But God chose what's foolish in the world like us to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being will boast in His presence. You get it? Surely you've said something like that before, right? Man, God, God is so unconventional. Why did He choose me? He chose me. I'm the least deserving. I'm the worst of the worst. I, I don't deserve to be in His kingdom and, and, and one of His children. I don't deserve that. Why me, Lord? I think in this reversal, we need to see that faith sometimes, oftentimes, will lead us to be unconventional. All right, back to Genesis 48. Last section here, number five, the gift from verse 21 and 22. The gift. Again, imagine the scene. Jacob now turns to Joseph and he says these words in verse 21. Behold, I'm about to die. And, and, and he tells Joseph, you're going to go back to the promised land. You're going to go back to our land. And the pronouns being used there in verse 21 are plural pronouns. So he's speaking to Joseph as a representation of the people of God are going to go back. They're actually going to be in Egypt here for 400 years before they go back. But then in verse 22, he turns and he mentions this personal gift that he's going to give to Joseph. Look at it in verse 22, the personal gift. Moreover, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Now think about just a minute who he's offering this gift to. Joseph, prince of Egypt, richest, most powerful man on planet earth. Hey, I got you a mountain slope. Think about this from Jacob's perspective. Did he just offer him a mountain slope that he doesn't even actually formally own yet? How do we make sense out of that? Faith. God said, it's yours. He believes it. I'll offer it to him. And what about, what about Joseph here? From Joseph's perspective, what does he value more? All that he has in Egypt? All the land and all the riches of Egypt? Does he, does he value that more or does he value that mountain slope? Over there in the promised land. Which one does Joseph value more? Now I want you to see that we see in Genesis 48, and we see in the rest of Genesis, that Joseph has a world-rejecting faith. Uh, an Egypt-rejecting faith. 
Okay? Joseph has a world-rejecting faith. And, and what I mean is, what he values more, he, he looks at all the riches and all the power he has in Egypt, all that inheritance of Egypt, but he values more that little mountain slope in the promised land. Because he has an Egypt-rejecting or a world-rejecting faith. Uh, uh, you know, he's, he's unimpressed with Egypt. 1 John 2.15 says this, brothers and sisters, don't love the world. Or the things in the world. Don't love the world or the things in the world. That's 1 John 2.15. And, and Joseph aligned with this. Because he valued not the world. He's unimpressed with Egypt. He'd rather have that mountain slope in the promised land. He'd rather have the promises of God. I want you to think about that for a minute. I want you to compare Joseph's, Joseph's faith with Moses' faith. Go with me to Hebrews 11. I want you to compare Joseph's faith with Moses' faith. So they're very similar here. Hebrews 11, verse 24. See if you can understand this. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, remember he grew up under Pharaoh's daughter. Remember that? When he grew up, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Okay, Moses has got two options before him. He's got the pleasures and riches of Egypt. And he's got the people of God, which has reproach and suffering. Which one will Moses choose? And this says Moses refused the riches and pleasures of Egypt to have the suffering, even the suffering of the people of God. Now, why do you make that choice? Are, are we supposed to believe that the disposition of Moses was something like this? I really wish I could have Egypt. I really want Egypt. But you know the right thing to do is to be a part of the people of God. Is that his disposition? And you know it's not because look at the next verse. It explains his decision. Why did he make this decision? Verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Did you catch that? So Moses is not going, man, I wish I could go to Egypt, but it's the right thing to do. I better be a part of the people of God. It's not that. He's looking at the people of God with all their reproach and all their suffering. And by the way, it says the reproaches of Christ. He sees Christ there. And he says that is greater wealth. That is more glorious than all the treasures of Egypt. So the disposition of Moses is I got to make a choice here. I'm going to take the better one. But by the eyes of faith, he could see that the better one was not the pleasures of Egypt. It was the reproaches of Christ. He could see it with the eyes of faith. Grace Community Church, I want to call all of you, all of us, into these five things that we've been talking about here. Not only faith rooted in the character and promises of God, I want to call you into that. Not only faith that leads to action and work, 
Even if it seems crazy. Not only the faith that worships and knows the future like we see here in this example. Not only a faith that is not afraid to look unconventional. Not, not only those things. But I want to call you into a world rejecting faith. I want to call you into a world rejecting faith. A faith that's unimpressed with the world. It's unimpressed with Egypt. Looks at the world. He's, a faith that's even bored with the world because it sees something more glorious. That's the kind of faith I want to call you into. Now, there is a wrong way to be world rejecting. All right, 1 John 2.15. Don't love the world or the things of the world. There's a wrong way to obey that verse. And it's what I described a moment ago with Moses. Brothers and sisters, the wrong way to do this is to go, well, we're supposed to reject the world. I really, really want the world, but I need to reject it because I need to do what's right. Uh, children of Grace Community Church, your church and your parents are not calling you to reject the world. But, you know, the world's so amazing, so good, it's so great, but reject it and go do more boring things. That's not what we're calling you to. When Jesus speaks about the man that found the treasure in the field, He's talking about conversion. That's what we're calling you to. It says that there was this man that saw one field and then he had all his other possessions. And he sold all his possessions to go buy that one field. Now, to everybody, but especially children of Grace Church, listen to me. The disposition of that passage is not this. Man, I really wish I could keep my stuff. I really wish I could keep all my worldly stuff, but I know the right thing to do is to go buy that field. That's not what that passage teaches. It says that he found a treasure in that field that felt so valuable and beautiful and glorious to him that when he went and sold everything else, it said he did it with joy. With joy, he sold everything else because he found something more glorious. And that's what we're calling you into. That you would leave behind the world and be bored with the world because it cannot compare to Christ, even if that means reproach, even if it means suffering with Him. So the right way to reject the world is by real faith. You need real faith, the faith of Moses. They could see the character of God. They could see the words of God. They could see the promises of God and believe in Him and therefore with joy forsake the world and go after Christ. That's the faith you need. You need the faith of Jacob and Joseph that was bored with Egypt because they knew something more glorious. I want to call you into that kind of faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for these examples of faith. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hold to the truth. God, give all of us here eyes to see who you are, Lord. I pray that you would make us diligent and hungry for your word to see who Christ is, to see who you are, Lord. Open our eyes that we might see wondrous things from your law. God, I pray that you help us to see the promises and rest on those promises. To hold fast on them. God, give us the faith that clings to those promises until our very last breath. God, I pray that you make us faithful on our deathbed. 
God, I pray that You would give us this world-rejecting faith, Lord. Help us to see the truth, Lord. That all the pleasures of this world are just bait. God, help us not to take the bait. Lord, help us to be constantly like those who see You as that great treasure. That treasure in the field that's so glorious and worth more than everything this world could offer. Lord, help us to live that out day in and day out. God, I pray that you would raise up men of faith and women of faith in this church. Fill our hearts with confidence in you, Lord. Give us the kind of faith that, that, that worships God and has confidence in what is to come in the future. Thank you, Lord. Thank you so much for hearing us. We commit this to you. In Jesus' name, amen.